Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. I mean, I think two of the most significant ones are if we think about the woman who anoints Jesus, and this actually happens more than once, and there's conversations about whether it's the same account told differently or whether it's different women. It doesn't really matter. What we have is we have a woman doing something that in the Bible only a male priest does, and mm-hmm. that's anointing a king. And I mean, this is this is something that even medieval theologians understood and talked about. It's just mind boggling that when evangelicals often look at that passage, what we often think about is the sin of the woman. God, can you show me how to grow? This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Sarah, Beth, and I are together in her office. There are books everywhere. It's so dreamy in Waco. And Dr. Beth Allison Barr, thank you for being on the All Once podcast. Thanks for having me. Patriarchy is fragile. Yes, it's Mm -hmm. very fragile. I think that the cracks are really coming to, it's always been fragile, Mm -hmm. but the cracks are really clear. I think part of my book was people realize that their story is just repeating itself Mm -hmm. in all of these different churches. And that's one of the reasons why um, someone asked me very early on, they were like, you didn't mention any names. Like everything is very impersonal. Like you don't even, you don't even mention your name. You don't mention anything else. And I was like, well, I did that for two reasons. I said, one of the reasons was because it's real people. Yeah. And I was trying to keep, you know, some things fuzzy. But the other reason was because I wanted people to see themselves in in the story. You know, mm. They could put themselves in, you know, this was my women's retreat that I was yeah. on. This was me sitting in the sermon when I heard something that was outrageous and nobody else is responding to it. I mean, how many women that's happened to? You've heard something and you're like, what? Did he just say that Bathsheba was complicit in rape? What is going on? And nobody else is reacting to. It. So I think I think women could see themselves in a lot of the stories I told. So the title of your book is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. What definition of biblical womanhood are we criticizing? Biblical womanhood is a relatively new idea, the way that I'm using it, Um, although it does have roots in history, which of course is what I talk about. But essentially it is the idea that women are divinely created different from men Mm -hmm. and that with that difference, comes different roles. And so women and women's different roles 
are always to follow men or to be mm-hmm. subordinate to men. And I know I've received a lot of pushback on using that word subordinate, but the reality is if you argue that men simply because of their male bodies have the right to be in leadership and women simply because of their female bodies cannot be in those leadership roles, that's subordination. I'm not sure what other word to use. <laughs> Well, and you have submissive and subordination have the same word of sub, which is below. Right. Submarine, it goes underwater. So however you're going to slice that argument, there's still a hierarchy there. It's a hierarchy. And and hierarchies is not what Jesus is about. No, I don't think so. And women are always on the lower rung. How should we define biblical womanhood based on the history of actual biblical women and the earliest Christians in medieval times? I actually recently wrote the Waco trip. I wrote an op-ed for them on this. If we think about biblical women, what we find is there's no pattern to what women do. Women are their leadership roles. Mm-hmm. We see this, all of the early leadership roles. And if we talk about first century church, it is apostle disciple, teacher. Women are in all three of those roles, and they're recognized by Paul in those roles. If we think about Old Testament women, they don't fit into patterns either. We go from Jael, who's really a lot of fun, to even Miriam. I mean, one of the odd things about Miriam is she's a Jewish woman, but we don't know who her husband is. It's never mentioned at all. I mean, this is one of the things that I found in the Bible, too, is that many women are not. We don't know who their husbands are, or even if they are married. That's not an identifying factor for them. And so I think what we find is that God calls people where they are, and God uses people who are willing to be used where they are. And I think being a biblical woman is being what God has called women to be. What did biblical womanhood and the subjugation of women look like in the church you attended where your husband was on staff? We have been married this year for 24 years, and he's been in ministry throughout that whole time. So we've actually been in several churches. And until very recently, all of the churches were complementarian. Mm -hmm. Earlier on in our marriage, the churches we were in were Southern Baptists, and they were complementarian, but it wasn't as rigid. Partially, it was because they were smaller churches. And smaller churches, it's really hard to enforce. You need somebody to teach a class, and so you use a person who's willing and able to teach. And we don't really think about, I mean, you can't have these rules in smaller churches. So there was much more flexibility within them. But when we moved to Waco, the church that my husband was hired on, it once was a more flexible church in the way that it approached women. It still also was complementarian, but it did allow for women to teach. Women taught the high school classes. They taught the college classes. Women were much more visible in it. But over time, the church became much more rigid in its response to women. And in fact, one of the things that my husband mentioned is that in the 14 years that we were there, a woman only prayed once on the stage. Wow. And so the lack of visibility, it was not just that it was, you know, talked about male headship. It had a very rigid application of it. And there was also a lot of, well, there were a lot of working women and there are a lot of working women in most churches, but there was also pressure to stay so, home. and while some women really love that and flourish in it and want to do that, and they are financially able to do that, it's it a is privilege. a luxury yep. to be able to do that. A lot of women are not, and so it's it would put pressure on those women. Yeah, there is a local church in Dallas that I heard about. My friend attended there, and the person who was discipling her was pregnant, 
and she was on staff at that church and she had to resign. Yes, it's so common. I have heard that story before from other you know, women now mm-hmm. when they have families that they are quietly asked to step, step out of those roles. Yeah. The other thing is, is that women often in interview questions, if they have a family, they're asked how this is not going to interfere with what they're supposed to do. It's so important to be having these kinds of conversations and making them more public because so many women just quietly sit there and feel that pressure and they don't really know who to talk to about it or if it's even okay to speak up. But then when you start to see other people are having the same experience and feeling as uncomfortable with it as I am, it kind of starts to build that community and that feeling that you're not alone in this feeling. And then it gives you a little bit of freedom to really think critically about those attitudes, I think. All right. Let's talk about how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. Mm -hmm. What does that look like and how did that happen? That really was the main thing that I was wanting to take apart in this book. And what has happened, I mean, we can look at this. And in fact, I think what got me really in trouble this week with the Gospel Coalition was that at the end of chapter seven, where I really drive home this point, is I called them out for in their statement that they have on their website, where they say they put complementarianism in the gospel. And even though they say that even if you don't believe that, that you can still be Christian, they also say that you have to do something. I mean, this is Tim Keller. He says that you have to do something to the text. Essentially, you are not as faithful a Christian and that you have the potential to slip down that slippery slope more quickly than other more faithful Christians. So it's this, the idea that it's gospel truth is that the best way to understand the gospel and the best way to live out what God has called us to be is to believe in female subordination. And that this is the culmination of this is with eternal subordination of the son, which is essentially old heresy, new name. It's manifested in different ways throughout the centuries. But because Jesus is subordinate to God the Father, that women are subordinate to men. It's their card where they can kind of end the conversation Mm -hmm. because they say, well, Jesus is subordinate. So Mm -hmm. women, why aren't you, why are you fighting the subordination too? The verse that keeps echoing in my mind is that Jesus did not not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So if we as women are being like Jesus and we're not considering equality with God something to be grasped, why aren't men? Well, I know. I remember my sister, I don't think she'll mind me saying this one time, she was pushing back against some of these conversations and women not being able to have these roles in church. And of course, what was always flung at her was, well, why are you being so prideful? Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, isn't it the same thing for you? Why are you wanting to maintain power? I mean, it's It's a double standard. It's a double standard. It's very interesting that we have let people get away with this for so long. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Okay. On that note, can you talk about the irony of the Reformation for women? Yes, this is it. And this chapter and my Paul chapter were the two chapters that I spent the most time writing and rewriting the Paul chapter for obvious reasons. Yes. The Reformation chapter, only academics will immediately know why I rewrote it so many times. And it's because I stepped into the middle of an academic debate Mm. on the implications of the Reformation for women. On the one hand, the Reformation was very nuanced. There's a lot of different levels to it. But when we think about the impact of it for evangelical women, that's really what I wanted to drive home. And my title says that the cost of the Reformation for evangelical 
evangelical women. Mm. What the evangelical world has done is they have used the aftermath of the, of the Reformation with the elevation of life to make wife be synonymous with godly. And so to be a godly woman in conservative evangelicalism is to be married with children and subordinate to your husband. And this idea developed in the aftermath of the Reformation. It is not an idea in the medieval world. It's not an idea that we see in what well, is somewhat in the ancient, the Greco-Roman world, but not exact, not to the same extent that we have it today. But, you know, in the medieval world, the highest calling for women was to serve God apart from the family, mm-hmm. and, which I'm not advocating that that's the best mm-hmm. either. I think women should be able to do whatever they're called to do. But it, with the Reformation, now it has focused on the godly wife. This is costly, not t- just to married women but to single women. And when we hear the voices all the time of single women, women who struggle with infertility, women who don't want to have children or don't want to get married, and they are treated as second class in these evangelical churches. I thought it was especially interesting how when we think about the Reformation and how that kind of did away with the idea that we need priests in order to have access to God. And then we have this theology of the priesthood of saints. How did this turn into something where where women still have to go through men to get Isn't to that, God. This is, I've been struggling with this for a long time because, and I think this is part of the reason why academics struggle with the, with the implications of the Reformation, because on the one hand, Reformation theology really does free women. We all have the same potential um, to be called by God. You know, it takes away that smaller separate class. Now, there are some evangelicals who still keep that type of hierarchy and have a more narrow understanding of calling. But still, the Reformation, it did open up the door for all people. And we did see in the 16th and the 17th century, we see a lot of women. In fact, I have a book in here somewhere that's about the preaching women of the 17th century. And where we see all of these women, you know, the floodgates opened and they just, they were like, well, I can do this too, you know? Mm-hmm. And we and they say this over and over again. They believed that they did have the right and they were called by God to do this. But and once again, and I think this is that the world in which we live is patriarchal, this yeah. systemic structure. And what we saw was the reintroduction. You know, I called it in the book, I said patriarchy shapeshifted. Mm-hmm. And it shapeshifted. And by limiting women's godliness or by defining women's godliness by being a wife, what that did is legally it put women under the authority of their husbands. Because in the early modern world, early modern Europe, women legally are under the authority of their husbands. And in fact, by the time we get like to the 19th century, women really have the legal status of children. Mm. And so we see this enforcement to be a godly woman is to be subordinate. You see how that goes together. Yes, that idea of women being legally subordinate Mm -hmm. and financially subordinate to Mm -hmm. men has carried over into modern day evangelical views to the point where like my personal experience is my ex literally would tell me you don't get an equal say and you don't get to help decide how we spend our money or any of the finances. And that was backed up with scripture and that I was not the head of the household. Yep. In the aftermath of my experiences there, I realized I'm not the only one that this is happening to. Right. This is a common experience in evangelical households. Yes. No, it is. I mean, I I tell my students when I'm teaching the modern part of the women's history course, as late as the 70s and 80s, -hmm. women were not able to do things like buy cars, get credit cards, etc. without having a male co-signer. It's clearly this is not something that comes from the Bible at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that is cultural. And we can see a lot of these modern ideas and uh, these carryovers 
are stem from the 19th century. You know, I have a love-hate relationship with the 19th century. I joke, if I hadn't been a medievalist, I probably would have been a 19th century scholar. Mm. And so I love the 19th century, but it also had serious implications for women. Going back to the subjugation of women being gospel truth, what happens when something that is not the gospel becomes so intertwined with the gospel, we hold tightly to it and make it gospel truth? Yes. Well, there's so many problems with that. I think on the one hand, one of the problems that we see this, we we talked earlier about how patriarchy is fragile. Mm. And what this does when we add things to the gospel, we make the gospel fragile. We saw this working with youth over and over again. And youth that grew up in very strict homes that taught very strict creationism and very literal interpretation of the Bible. And then when those students would get introduced to the fact, you know, they go to a basic religion class and they realize that there's actually two creation stories in the beginning of Genesis and that Genesis is Hebrew poetry. And all of a sudden their faith starts crumbling Yeah, because Mm -hmm. it is not built on Jesus. It's built on these accretions that we have added to the gospel. And so you can think about this with patriarchy. Essentially what patriarchy does is it puts men in the place of God and men are not God and men don't act any better than women do. And so when men, when we put them on that pedestal and they fell, faith crumbles. So it is, it's very destructive to faith, to the gospel, and it gives the gospel a bad witness. I think that's what I experienced throughout season one, whenever I was doing all of this, I Mm -hmm. I was deconstructing constructing my faith in in a lot of ways while also, you know, being a young mom and working and doing all these other things. And I felt I knew God was there because my faith is strong. Mm-hmm. But I also felt that fragility yes, and farness from, I felt untethered, I think is the yeah. right word from, from the God of my youth. And your book brought me back to the God of my youth to where I could hold these two opposing views together and see God in the middle of all of that in a wrestling and God is bigger than that. God is not married to me says God doesn't need us to protect his reputation. Right. God does not need us God to is not fragile. protect his power. God is not fragile. We don't need to worry about that. And we can look back at the history and the complexity of faith pioneers mm-hmm. and see God's strength through all of that. Our faith doesn't have to crumble. So one of most people don't know this, but earlier this year, right before the making of biblical womanhood came out, I actually was an editor on a devotional book with another historian. And I love it. It's a whole bunch of Christian historians and we all got together and we wrote on different passages of the Bible as devotionals, drawing on the stories of people in the past and how they interpret. And one of the things that I love about it is that it shows us how strong people's faith is despite the differences that we have over time and despite the cult, you know, the differences in cultures and the same faith, the same God that I have today is the same God that the medieval priests that I read about, even though I believe very, you know, some very different things from them, but those things aren't part of the gospel. Yeah. And, but Jesus is the gospel and it's the same Jesus. And so I I love that as a historian, it gives me that big perspective that I think we are lacking in evangelical churches because we have such a narrow view of history. So patriarchy is this, subordination of women. The expect the, the law, but it's a systemic, which means that it is not just made by individual decisions. Mm. It is made by the structures in which a society is built mm. that always places women underneath the power of men. The fingerprints of that, which you mentioned earlier, just just to connect that argument. It's, 
systemically how women couldn't get a loan, couldn't buy a car, couldn't yes. do things without the approval of their husband. Those are the, the fingerprint of the history of patriarchy in American culture. We can look at several examples of patriarchy in other cultures, but we'll just stick to American patriarchy here. And one of the things that I say, because patriarchy is a word that turns people away, like feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Feminism and patriarchy, those are loaded words, just like submission. Right. People quickly will turn away or turn to right. those words. So one of the things that I use in place of patriarchy sometimes, just for the sake of getting people to listen to the conversation, is gender hierarchy. And it's the same kind of thing, but it's systemic gender hierarchy continually over time to where it's in, intertwined with what is truth. Right. And one of the systemic evidences of patriarchy that I used in my book, which is still one of the most shocking examples, I think, is the wage difference mm. that um, women in the medieval world made about you know 70 cents to a male dollar for the same work. And today women make 75 cents on the male dollar. And so, I mean, it's just amazing wow. that continuity, despite seven, 800 years that yeah. separate us. So that's called systemic inequality. Okay. In your book, you talk about looking for what the Bible actually says about the origin of patriarchy. When you look at that account in Genesis, do you feel that patriarchy was ordained before the fall or was it a result of the fall? Oh, it is so a result of the fall. It is so clear. And what's interesting, if we look theologically and we look at scholars and how scholars have talked about this, and we even talked about the early church fathers, patriarchy, they almost always see patriarchy as a result of the fall. It's actually very modern that we begin to see this argument existed before the fall. And this is also tied up with this eternal subordination of the Son, that Jesus has always been eternally subordinate to God the Father. And so women have always been eternally subordinate to men. Mm-hmm. And this is a very strange theological argument. Today. It is clearly also not supported in the text. I mean, even Russell Moore talks about that there is no indication of hierarchy within Genesis, within that text, Mm. and that women and men are equally to take care of the land. The stewardship is given to both of them. And the naming process of the animals, I mean, that's one of the craziest arguments that I've heard. You know, it's sort of, and I think about it too, this is something I've said before, is that if the idea is, is that the person who, you know, the order of creation, if it goes from the animals to Adam, and that's the highest point of creation, then Eve. <laughs> Eve is actually <laughs> <Yeah>. next. <laughs> so I'm just like, that's, and I don't argue for that, right. but that's the logic of it. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I'm just like, why do we think this makes sense? Mm-hmm. It does not make sense theologically. I like to say, God gave us a brain, it's good to use it. And that's what I really appreciate about your book was the intellect behind it, the academia behind your book, because I've been craving that to exercise my brain and my thought and to dive deeper into the theological arguments that are intertwined with cultural arguments, Mm -hmm. but they just don't make sense. Once you start to think about them just a tiny bit more, they start to crumble and break down, but I didn't have the answer to it. I just knew that they were breaking down, but I didn't know what the solution was. Mm -hmm. No, it's exactly right. That fragility again. Yeah. Yeah. What passages in the Bible undermine patriarchy? Can you talk about how Jesus interacted with women and the way he treated them and how that was significant? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, I think two of the most significant ones are if we think about the woman who anoints Jesus, and this actually happens more than once. And there's conversations about whether it's the same account told differently or whether it's different women. It doesn't really matter. What we have is we have a woman doing something that in the Bible 
only a male priest does, and mm. that's anointing a king. Mm. And I mean, this is this is something that even medieval theologians understood and talked about. It's just mind-boggling that when evangelicals often look at that passage, what we often think about is the sin of the woman. Mm-hmm. And what that passage is really about, it's about that Jesus is Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, and that here he is being recognized. This woman sees that. And I love that it's Hagar in the Old Testament who names God the God who sees. Mm -hmm. And then this is what we see again. And then we see this also in Jesus, in Jesus, like talking with the woman of Canaan and the woman who grabs his cloak and the power goes out of him. And these women, Jesus says, you are of great faith. Mm. They understood, they saw Jesus. And in medieval texts, this is something too, that we see, in fact, one of the articles that I've written that was in rebuttal to another argument, you know, it's all these small scholarly debates. It was over this passage of women seeing God, Mm. and that we see in the New Testament that it is women who Jesus says, you are of great faith. It is the apostles that Jesus says, where is your faith? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's crazy to me. So, I mean, just those passages, I'm not saying that women aren't better or are spiritually more attuned to God. I think, though, that what that's clearly showing these understanding of women as being underneath or being less than men, I mean, clearly Jesus is bringing that to the forefront. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, this is a pattern. I mean, if we based our response and the way we treat women in the church based upon the actions of Jesus, be radically different. It really would. So many examples of how he elevated women. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of roles did women have in the early church? Historically, I, I laugh about these things. You know, we have all these debates about ordination. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not people can be ordained, where do we draw the line, et cetera. And I'm just like, you know, ordination has a history. Ordination's not in the Bible. The basis for what we use as ordination is in the Bible, but ordination really didn't develop in the Western church until, you know, the central Middle Ages. And then we can trace its development. And it it's not always had the same meaning over time. It's culturally constructed. I understand the biblical roots that it's based on. When we think about what did people do in the church, what we know is that the names of those positions have changed over time. And there's no senior pastor in the Bible. But we do see some of those basic roles. And we see the role of apostles the role of the messenger, the role of essentially the apostle is the messenger. The apostles are also preachers. And we see that they carry the good news, they carry the gospel. That's what Mary Magdalene does to the apostles. And we also see the the role of deacon is one and that Paul names deacons and Paul names a female deacon. He names Phoebe. Mm -hmm. Um, He names Junia as an apostle. We also see the role of teacher. And this is another role that's recognized. It's one that Paul talks about, that you have to be very careful as teachers. He names problems with teachers. We have Apollos, who is teaching, and he is corrected by Prisca and Aquila. And so by a woman... He, we see this other teacher, you know, that, that is corrected. And so women, all of these early roles in the Bible, the earliest roles that carry authority in the first century church are filled by women. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it really hard to argue, which, is, I mean, it really comes down to it when people say, well, I think a woman can do everything, but be senior pastor or preach or something like that. And I'm like, well, that, you know, that's, that's fine. It's not gospel, but at the same time, that's not a limit we see in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I can see your perspective. I respect where you're coming from, but it's not necessarily biblical. Right. 
It's not, I mean, I, I cannot see, I feel like Dorothy Sayers, Sayers this is what she says. She says, I can find no theological reason yeah. for women not to be ordained. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I stand with her on that. I stand with you on that. <laughs> so why do you think that evangelical Christians just kind of skip over these early roles of women in the church and the consistent way that Jesus elevated women throughout his ministry? Because of the way we are taught. I think that's a large part of it. If we look at, if you if you did a systematic study of evangelical sermons in conservative churches over time, I have not done this. It would be really fun to do. But I think what you would find is you would find that there is, that women's roles are minimized mm-hmm. in these sermons, that even in times that women are authoritative in the Bible, that those roles are minimized or explained away. You know, I've talked about before that the woman who grabs the cloak of Jesus, that I've looked at how she's examined in modern sermons, and she's often, it's emphasized, you know, that she's weak and that she's bleeding and that she's ill and all of this stuff. You know, the weakness of her is greatly emphasized. But when we look at her from medieval sermons, what was emphasized was the strength of her faith. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a different, we emphasize different things. Mm -hmm. And so I think women have, women and men have heard women minimized. And this leads us to believe that women are minimized. If you think about, this is one of the things that Amy Bird, I think she's been really brave tackling, even in very conservative churches, is the theology that is taught to women, the types of books that are sold to women, and the devotional books, etc. I mean, it's just, it's very soft theology that mostly caters to their role as wives and mothers. Not that those roles aren't important, but there's a whole lot more going on. And so I think it's, I think it's education. I think mm-hmm. it's the way that we are taught and what we read and what we hear. Yeah. When you were talking, it made me think of the devotionals that I remember doing as a little girl and the books that I remember reading, the, the topics that we talked about on like girls retreats yes. or in small groups. Yes. You know, I've even gone back and looked through all my books, my old books, and I've, I've looked through and I've just been like, Oh my goodness. They were teaching us yes. submission and to be quiet and silent and to accept mistreatment yes. from a very young age. That's exactly right. It's stunning. Baffling. Yes. Stunning. Yeah. No, it is. And it's one of the reasons why I'm very rigorous about looking at the curriculum. Mm-hmm. That is presented to both my children, although my son now, he's old enough that it's harder. But with my daughter, always looking through all of the curriculum that's presented just to see how women are presented. And in fact, her school responded very well. But I had a frank conversation with one of her history teachers about how little women were being used in their history classes mm-hmm. and that you know, the implications of that. And they actually changed it. They brought more wow. women in and changed it. But I was just like, awesome. you know, we've just got to stop this. We've yeah. got to put women in the story because women are in the story. Mm-hmm. It's an injustice for yeah. sure. Well, and it, it doesn't show us the fullness of what happened. And yeah. It doesn't show us the fullness of God. Yeah. When we don't have women represented and when women are taught to be silent, it has very big consequences. We're going to talk more about this later on the consequences in your life uh, that you shared at the end of your book and the consequences of my life. We're going to kind of end on that, just the the evidence of, mm-hmm. of the dangers of that. But before we do that, I have to talk about Paul. Yeah. I was really curious how you were going to tackle <laughs> that chapter. And I am delighted to hear that it took you a long time to write it because it felt like it took like a long time to write. Like it felt so nuanced. And I was so grateful for that nuance because 
I had all of those questions and you answered them. So tell me about Pauline texts. What do we do with Paul? How do we interpret Paul? I didn't want to write the Paul chapter because I feel like this is where our argument has become jaded, Mm. that it is simply people throwing proof texts at each other over how do we interpret various words? How do we interpret authentic? And also, how do what is authentic? It's the authority. It's the one, you know, that is said that women are to be under the authority, not Mm. to have teaching authority over men. Mm. And so all, you know, vigorous debate about it. I just feel like it got mired. And so I really didn't want to do it. But then my husband actually convinced me. He was like, if you don't get them at Paul, they will not hear anything else. Yeah. And he was right about that. And so what I, my goal with that chapter was to not maybe tell you how to read Paul, but to let you see that there are very reasonable, faithful readings of Paul that do not read female submission. Mm. And that when you place it in historical context, Paul looks different. And so that's really when I, I didn't want people to walk away from it and say, I, ha- I can only read Paul this way, mm. you know, because I, there's a lot of really good scholars and there's a lot of still of disagreement on this. But what we do agree about is that Paul has to be read within historical context. And most good biblical scholars do not see female submission in any of these texts, you know, this general sort of thing, because once it's placed within historical context, we we have a much better understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like the passage that I talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, that scholars agree that those words to women, ask your husbands at home, they're very jarring in the text. It doesn't go along with the flow of the text. They're clearly not Paul's words. Mm-hmm. Some scholars argue, very good scholars say, those really don't belong there. They were added in later on, which which makes reasonable sense. I mean, because those are not Paul's words. They are the words of the Corinthians and historical evidence clearly shows that. But they also, Paul certainly could, and this is you know the one that I find most attractive, is that Paul is doing what he always does. He's quoting the opposition and then saying why it's wrong. And so it's a rhetorical strategy that he uses over and over again. And it makes perfect sense. That's what he's doing there. I think we have been so framed to read Paul only one way. And I just wanted to open back the door that we can read Paul differently. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? That's exactly what I wanted people to walk away, you know, just to think and to realize that if they are wrong, it doesn't mean they can't be a faithful Christian. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I wanted to get across. Um, I also think maybe that's why I have become so dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, because not only I'm not, you can't, you can't cast me out as a flaming liberal or someone who's trying or somebody who's against the church or is trying right. to tear down the church because I'm not. Yeah. And so I think it makes it harder for them. So, um, you know, so what do you do with me as a faithful Christian yeah. who reads Paul differently? Right. And I just believe that people like you, these dis- disruptors, mm-hmm are actually bringing people back to the church. I hope so. You're you're not drawing them. You're You're not pushing people away from the church. You're bringing people back. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I really would like. And, you know, um, People have asked me, some people have even said that that Paul is Paul's a feminist or Paul's pro women. I don't think Paul is. I think Paul's practical. Mm. I, I think Paul's trying to get the gospel out there and he uses the people who are available. Yeah. Like those small churches. Yes, that's exactly it. It's like Mm -hmm. a small church. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think Paul probably saw himself as doing anything revolutionary, 
but I think he he was so gospel oriented that he was using the people who were able to be used mm-hmm. and sending them out. So let's talk about Bible translations. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? Oh, gosh. This is an aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, very much so. And it it's also an aftermath of the printing press. I mean, seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just because print became more available. People could have it. It was more accessible. Um, there were a lot of Bibles that people could have. People did have access to the Bible in the medieval and um, world much more so than we think. But nonetheless, it's, you know, the material circumstances that allow us to print Bibles uh, made them much more available. And it also drove that people wanted to be able to read them and be able to understand them. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we begin to see the variations of translation. So there's a really good impetus behind this. And I don't think, you know, I think it's really good that that lots of people are reading the Bible and that we're translating it and it's moving all over the world. And it's so accessible to find. I I don't know how many Bibles I have even in this office just stuck around in different places. Mm -hmm. So, but the problem is, is that we don't pay attention enough to how they are translated. Mm. And I I just did a podcast with Scott McKnight, which was really great about this and had him, he talked about it, but almost all of the English Bible translations today actually stem from pretty much the same manuscripts. I mean, we're not finding new manuscripts very often. So we're mostly all using the same things. And so most of the translations are like 90% the same, 90 mm. to 95% the same. There's only minor variations in them. It's just that those minor variations reflect the position, the theological positions of the people who are translating the text. And that's something that many Christians don't understand. The changes are, in some ways, it doesn't matter if you read the ESV or you read the NRSV, the gospel's still there. But what does matter is the theological decisions made by the translators. By that 5% difference. Yes. Because... Talking about the ESV, I remember when it came out, and I remember being told by my pastors that this is the most literal translation of the Bible. And I looked it up. I was curious after I read it. I looked it up on their website, the English Standard Version website. It says, the English Standard Version is an essentially literal translation of the Bible in contemporary English, created by a team of more than 100 leading evangelical scholars and pastors. The ESV Bible emphasizes word-for-word accuracy, literary excellence, and depth of meaning. Yep. In those words, we hear those words and we say, oh, this is exactly the Bible that everybody, you know, that was from the ancient world. This is the best one. This is what everybody read. But what we don't realize is that English is a very poor translation of biblical languages. Even so, there is no word for word for word is not possible. Mm. It is not possible. And it is, it's also... And one of the reasons it's not possible is because it would make no sense to us. And in fact, if very word for word, you know, the closer you get to the way that the Greek texts really were written, the less clear it is for us to understand because English is not Greek. Mm. And the way that we format our sentences and structures, English is not Aramaic. The way that we structure our sentences are different. It's simply not true. Any English Bible has had choices made. I mean, everything, It make a choice about how you structure the sentence, where you move the words, what is, how do we use you know, the pronoun? Because English does not have standard gender neutral pronouns. Right. And I mean, that's a huge, we, we have all sorts of discussions about pronouns today, and it's because English doesn't have them and Greek does. And so that's part of 
uh, you know, it, you, there are words that include both brothers and sisters in a single word mm -hmm. that we don't have. What's flawed about the ESV in those nuances with those pronouns? What's the problem when we look to that text for as the supreme text for the yeah. Bible? Well, they had a, they had decisions that they made. And one of the things, all of those hundred translators that you mentioned, I think maybe they added some more in. In the beginning, they were all male. Mm -hmm. They were all men that did it. They are all men of a very particular background. Um, there were a few egalitarians that did help with the Bible study notes. Christianity Today has this fantastic article about how one of those egalitarian um, study note Bible, he had his name removed from it mm. because um, Wayne Grudem changed what he had put in. And so, I mean, wow. yeah, go look it up. It's really, it's really amazing. The ESV, the translators of the ESV, they thought that feminism had invaded the church. Yeah. And so their goal with the ESV was to restore gender roles, restore biblical gender roles. This Bible minimizes women more than probably any other modern translation, and it was purposeful. Mm -hmm. And so they changed Junia, instead of being an apostle, becomes somebody the apostles knew. Mm -hmm. Phoebe, instead of being a deacon, becomes a servant, which technically does mean deacon, but it's interesting that it's not changed for other deacons. The male deacons still carry the title. And so people reading it, they see Phoebe as less authoritative. And then, of course, the rendering of text is much more male-oriented. If we think about 1 Timothy 3, all of those pronouns that are in there, all of those masculine pronouns that make it sound like elders, deacons, whatever, can only be men, those are not in the Greek text. They're gender neutral pronouns they are, in the Greek. Yeah, or they're tech or they're they're pronouns that can be read either way. Uh, some yeah. of them might be more likely to be read masculine and some, you know, but they can be read either way. And that actually if you look at a rendering, a Greek rendering of that, it is unclear whether the leaders could be male or female. It is open to both of them in that text. I mean it's dramatically different. But the wow. ESV makes it a only men can and then they quote it at you. Mm -hmm. and say only men can do this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, no, it's mm -hmm. because of the way you've translated it purposefully to keep women out of the out of leadership. That's mm -hmm. where that it, hermeneutics. Yes. That's where we're bringing our lens and yes. our bias to exactly the text. Exactly right. Instead of just looking at the text, right. we're bringing our Hermes, our, our hermeneutic to the text also. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed evangelical leaders will insist on just unquestioning reliance on some of these texts yes. from a translation like ESV. How does that impact the culture within evangelical Christianity? Well, I mean, clearly women who only have heard these passages read from the ESV, they believe that they cannot be in these roles. And they believe that if they push against these roles, that they are pushing against the Bible. Mm -hmm. And they have internalized this because this is all they hear. And they also have heard that if they interpret it any other way or women who do interpret it any other way are not as faithful as they are. And so there it also introduces an element of fear that, you know, they're afraid of of people who interpret it differently. They're afraid of churches that have female pastors. They immediately close the door to those on being liberal churches, mm -hmm. which is not a word that is used, you know, it's used negatively. So I think it makes the church very divided 
in a way that it doesn't need to be. It polarizes it, you know, the people who are faithful to the Bible and then everybody else mm-hmm. is kind of what it does, evangelicals have done. And um, historians, you know, Kristen Cobes Dumay, and she also, you know, Barry Hinkins, you know, these are two really good scholars who have shown us that evangelical culture have often, at the root of evangelicalism, is often defining ourselves as who we are against yeah. mm-hmm. and who we are fighting. And so in some ways, this is part of our culture, too. And so it's the ESV has helped us yeah. keep that embattled spirit. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the belief that you start to adopt as a woman growing up or as a girl growing up in that environment is that if I question this, I'm questioning God. That's exactly it. That's and exactly I can't it. do that. I need to stay quiet and submissive. I can't question God. Right. And hence all the Bible studies about how to not be prideful and how to not, you know, fight against, you know, that the problem is you. Yeah. The problem is you, not the system. Mm -hmm. So who benefits from the system that prevents women from speaking up and leading and teaching in Christian environments? Well, very clearly, the men who are at the top of the system right now, who in control, control, like the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who control a lot of the conservative seminaries, um, and, you know, they clearly benefit from this. Now, not all of them, I think, know, you know, they're not, they don't walk into the saying, aha, I'm in control. I think many of these men in these places, they sincerely believe this too. And so they think they're protecting orthodoxy because they also have been taught this. But at the same time, they are also benefiting from this system. Mm -hmm. Um, Women also benefit from the system. One of the reasons that women are complicit is because we benefit. Um, It can be a comfortable system for us. You know, in some ways, it it allows us to push the burden of spiritual growth in our families on our husbands. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, which is a horrible burden to place on your husband, Mm -hmm. um, that he's the only one who's supposed to carry it. But it alleviates it from the women. You know, I'm using this carefully because I don't think a lot of women see them themselves this way. But if we look at it overarching, we know that biblical womanhood mostly only works in wealthier, upper middle class white families because they're the only ones who can really play this out. Mm-hmm. And so there's a class element here too. There's um, there's a race element in this as well. And so it benefits white women of a particular class and it benefits our kids too. You think about the impact on children too. You know, I often think about this you know, I'm like, oh, sometimes because my husband and I, we both work and we do all these things, too. And we have these two kids. And I'm like, what if, you know, for kids who their parents are solely focused on them? Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, what is that? Is that healthy either? You know, I don't know. I mean, you shouldn't neglect your children and you shouldn't. It's it's hard as a parent to figure out. But what I do know is that um, my kids are are independent. They can do things on themselves. So yeah. I'm very yeah. pleased for that. <laughs> I have a lot of shame. I think I think shame gets wedged in there, too, for women and i think my husband also probably feels this way because we both don't adhere to our gender stereotype and to what has been prescribed to us mm-hmm. in our culture and so it's hard to not feel like we're failing oh yes no it's the shame element uh, i've dealt with the shame element you know terribly mm-hmm. um with being a working mom yeah. all of my career yeah with having children. And so, so there is, there's a lot of shame put into it. And there's also shame on men. Yeah. Uh, you know, in fact, Mark Driscoll, I was just listening to one of his sermons. Uh, you know, gosh, I can't listen to him for very long, <laughs> but in which he, you know, he said, if you are, if your wife is working, he, he told men, he said, you're a selfish bastard. Oh my God. And it was like, that's terrible. It's terrible. 
that's terrible. You know, one of the conversations we had before I accepted this job of going returning teaching full time in the fall was he wanted to make sure that's what I wanted, not because I wanted more money. And right. we had to have a chat that said, but I but I do like earning money. I do like being an income generator in our right. family. And I think that is a part of it, not because I want more stuff, but I do enjoy being independent and having my own independence. Should something happen, I I do enjoy knowing that if something terrible were to happen to you, that I already have a career and that career will continue and can carry us through any terrible thing that would happen to you. And that that shame, I think, was what we both were expressing. I felt shame for wanting to earn more income. And he felt shame for me wanting to do that. Right. You know, we, we both had yes. that shame element to, to me wanting to amplify my career and him wanting me to amplify my career too. <laughs> I remember, I remember one time early on, someone asked my husband if he was going to be okay when I made more money than him because of the trajectories of our professions. And I remember he said, he said, I can't wait till Beth earns more money than me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a question. I was just thinking about on the way here. I know, and Soraya Shamali talks about this in her book too, Rage Becomes Her. The question women get a lot are, what does your husband think about that? Or how's your husband, your poor husband? I'm like, well, I don't know who you're married to, but the guy I'm married to thinks this is great. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. I always, I remember my husband saying that because I thought it was, I was like, that was perfect answer. That's so He's good. like, I can't wait until she does. So you end your book with how I begin my podcast in season one with the why, the evidence. Yeah. The evidence is why this matters. And if you're comfortable with sharing more, I'd like to hear about that relationship with the guy who didn't respect you and who harmed you. How was that relationship? And then how is that evidence of all the things we're talking about? One of the reasons that I told that story was simply to help pull the whole picture together. Right. And to also pull together the picture of how this is internalized within our systems. When we create a system of inequality, And where we tell one part of that system that simply because of the way they are born, that they are able to wield power over the other person, that it does create dangerous systems. It doesn't mean that all people in complementarian systems are going to become abusers, but it enables abuse in ways that other systems do not. It also enables abuse because when women are caught in these things, who do they, there's no one to tell. And then I actually was just talking with a reporter about this on on purity culture. You know, part of it is, too, is that purity culture, women are always are always guilty. Yeah. Because if either you were not safeguarding your body enough by you were in the wrong place, you were, you know, drink, t- drinking the wrong substance, you were doing something that didn't allow you to protect your body or you had done you had worn something or had done something that had enticed somebody. Mm-hmm. And so purity culture starts from the perspective of female guilt. Yeah. And I think that is, and that I think is part of this culture too, of women not reporting these things or not understanding that they are victims. I didn't know that I was a victim of sexual yeah. assault until I was 26. Yeah. And I was a, a, a six when it happened yeah. and I did not know that I was a victim so I think, you know, that it really is because women, they think that it was something that they did wrong. Yeah. 
and they don't understand that that their bodies aren't owned by other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, women in evangelical culture, does this concept of purity culture is that you are passed from your father's family to your husband's family and this idea that you are not your own. Mm-hmm. And we are not our own, but we are not our own because of Jesus, not because of our fathers and husbands. Right. That's why I shared that story at the end was to kind of pull pull this whole framework, I think, together. And then also to tie it in to the the Me Too and the Church Too movement. And a lot of the impact of the Me Too and the Church Too movement, I think, is that people are criticizing how many women are coming forward with these stories. And it is, and the thing is, is I think women are becoming aware Mm -hmm. that they have been victims Mm -hmm. and that these assaults were not okay. And, And that was something, you know, with me, too. I think it was kind of a slow awareness. Um, although at the time, it was sort of funny. I've had people who have tried to discredit that part of my story. And I'm like, y'all, you don't know how many people know this story. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. you know, you just talk to some of my friends or my roommates. And, um, you know, I, anyway, I mean, I gave a talk on it like a year after I gave a talk on it to like a whole group of women. So I'm just like, y'all just have no idea how many mm-hmm. people know this story. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I still have been cautious about the story because I just don't want to open that part of my life up again into, I don't, you know, I that. don't want to bring any of that back. So I have been careful about it. But at the same time, I do think it's important. And the other thing that I wanted women to know, too, is because I think there are a lot of women who carry these stories in them. And they still don't share them and they still haven't dealt with them and they haven't reconciled them and they still carry the shame because they believe it is their fault. And I think this is tied to what, when we teach in the Bible, when we use the Bible to teach that women are less than men, then women believe that they are less than men. And this is one of the reasons why we believe that it is our fault that these things happen. And so part of this was too, is I wanted I wanted other women to be able to hear that I was part of this also, and that that also that I grew up in this culture in which I internalized these ideas so much so that I allowed myself to stay within this type of relationship. And it did take the the miracle of God to pull me out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really do. It was a miracle of God to pull me out of that. And it's just amazing that I was able to, and I think it was also because my family was so different from that. I was able to finally kind of get some distance and be like, whoa, what was going on there? But part of it too was this idea that you had to get married, you had to be with somebody and that you define yourself by who you are with. Right. And I think a lot of young girls, that's their goal is to get a boyfriend and to be able to define themselves that way. So I brought that story home because I think, you know, lots of my book, even though there are experiences other women can relate with, there's lots of things that I do that other women can't relate with. Mm -hmm. But I think so many people in the church, this is their story. Yeah. And so, and it is, it's not that complementarianism causes abuse, but it enables, it enables this. And part of the reason it enables it is because women internalize it. Mm -hmm. And we believe that it is, that it is our fault. Mm -hmm. And we believe that it is our, you know, in some ways that it is our shame. Mm -hmm. And so we carry it. And I also, I wanted to put that in perspective, you know, the stories that I told after that, one of them is the story of Christine de Pizan. And one of the things that Christine de Pizan, one of the reasons that she did the things she did 
is she wasn't a feminist. You know, feminist is sort of a broader about the systemic culture. You know, she was more fighting for women in her world and in, you know, in in her culture and in, in her circles. And she had this story of this woman who wasn't abused because of the ideas that her husband held. And so she was like, we've got to, she connected theology with practical impact. And I think a lot of people don't connect complementarianism with the practical impact. And so that's why I told that story at the end. That's also why I brought in Christine de Pizan um, to show that this is not, I'm not the first one saying this. Mm -hmm. Women have been saying this for a long time. Ideas matter. Mm -hmm. And so complementarian ideas enable women to be treated as less than men, which means that women are not created in the image of God the same way as men. And that's the bottom line of complementarianism and people don't like it. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to enter into a covenant with someone and you hold that theology mm-hmm. that you are inherently less than that person, yes, then that essentially means they kind of own you. Yes. And if they if they hold that over you like that, yes, they are completely enabled to do whatever they want. Yes. And you don't get to object. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. And, you know, and so in some ways. It is, we talk about in, in history and a word that has come up a lot, um, you know, sort of a new theoretical framework is precarity. And that when some people have more, live in more precarity, which means that their ability to, their ability to thrive, their ability to succeed is limited by the people's choices around them. Mm-hmm. And women often live in precarity because our lives and think about with complementarianism, our lives are determined by the choices men make. Mm. Yeah. And that and that is um, that is a dangerous place to put women, especially if your theology is putting women there. Right. Mind blowing right now. Um, <laughs> that's so true. Well, and, you know, and there's a difference between choosing that you want to do this and you want to be in this position mm-hmm. and this position being the only place that you can go to right. be a godly woman. I don't want to tell women what God is calling them to be. I mean, I, there's room for all of us. Um, there's room for people who want to stay home. There's room for people who don't yeah. want to have kids. There's room for people who want to be single. Uh, there's just room for all of us. And I don't understand why we're trying to limit, limit God. And we see that in actual biblical women. Yes. All these kinds of women that you just listed are actual biblical women. They're women who are married. They're women who are divorced. They're women who are, don't have kids. There are women who are disruptive. There are women who are quiet. There are women who serve Jesus. There are women who are stay at home moms. Like there's all these kinds of women all faithfully serve God and are celebrated by God and are celebrated in the Bible as biblical women. Their stories are told. And so like you say, that's why it's time to end patriarchy and to yeah. free women. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. I love that. Beth, if people want to engage more with you or to learn more outside of your book, which if you haven't already paused this episode to go order it, do that. Go order the book. Where can people engage with you the best ways? Well, you know, um, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> For better or for worse, you can also find me on Instagram. I'm not as faithful an Instagrammer, although I find Instagram very peaceful. Yeah. So sometimes I'm like, I'm just gonna go hang out on Instagram because it's just it's just pictures, you yeah. know. It's so peaceful. And so you can find me. So at Twitter is the main place. Um, you can also go to BethAllisonBar.com. Although I'm not so faithful about updating that 
page either. Um, but you can also follow me at The Anxious Bench, uh, where on Pathios, where I write at least once a month. I appear on there. Thank you, Beth, for yeah. being on our podcast. Thanks Thank for having so me. Much. This has been fun. Thank you. Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager. Taylor Diggs, our intern. And Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs in Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. While the world keeps on taking for itself.